I'm old, but not that old. Um, my name is Anna Douglas, and I am, that's a little loud. Isn't that too loud? No? OK. It's too loud for me. Um, I am one of the spirit rockers. That's how we're known sometimes. There's so many of us, you probably it's hard to keep up, you know, a lot of teachers. Um, but I was thinking, I was, as I was sitting here, I had a few thoughts. Yes, I did. And one of them was about James and how we, in the early days, in the late 70s, early 80s, how we sat many long retreats together. And J James was especially known for his slow walking. You, you just couldn't believe anybody could walk so slowly for so long, days on end. He'd be very, it was very admirable and made those of us who were not able to do that very, felt, feel very, uh, you know, inferior. But it all turned out okay in the end. So, um, yeah, so I feel very fortunate to have um, been part of Spirit Rock for a long time now. And um, so I've gotten to teach and practice and mingle my mind with the Dharma for almost 28 years, almost 30. It's hard to believe. I, and I truly feel like I'm just getting going. <laughs> Takes a while, this path, to get the hang of it or not, never, maybe, to get the hang of it. Um, so James was in Tucson last March, where I have a home, and I spend half the year now, and he was there on a book tour. So he and his wife, Jane, stayed with me, and this is where we got this idea that I would come and be here with you all on this evening, and it seems so far away at the time. Now it is here. Thus. This is how time works. It unfolds, and there we are. So, um, so I wanted to come on this particular day when he mentioned he, he needed somebody, because on Sunday I'm teaching a day long at Spirit Rock. It's always good to, to uh, be able to tell people before a day long what, you, what you're about to do. So if any of you are interested, there are some flyers on the back table. Since I turned 70 last year, Thank you, thank you. I, um, well, actually, before I turned 70, when I turned 65, I got very interested in this idea that, oh my gosh, we're all aging. I'm aging, I see everybody. You know, it, it's kind of news when it begins to happen to you. You think until then it's only other people, but then it happens to you. So for the last four or five years, Naomi Newman and I have been doing a series of day-longs for elders, those 55 and over. And I think what's happening is a sangha is developing out of that community. And it's, it's a very, um, have any of you been to any of those day-longs? Yes. And you know what's, it's, it's a funny thing when you hear other people talk about your issues, you know, the, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, the forgetfulness or um, a slowing down, these things that when we're all by ourselves with them, they may feel, uh, we can feel like, you know, 
I'm the only one, or maybe something's wrong with me, or we judge ourselves. But when you're in a whole room full of people who are wildly laughing at memory loss, it really cheers you up. <laughs> so that will be on, uh, on Sunday. Uh, it's a day for us to uh, share and go more deeply into what it means, actually. You know, in our culture, we're not given a lot of help with that stage of life. It's a stage of life. I think when I was younger, I thought you'd just kind of reach a plateau, maybe at you know, 60, and you'd just stay there till you fell over, and that was it. But it's not like that at all. I, f I feel as alive now in, in different ways than I did when I was 35. You know? So it's a different stage of life. But our culture doesn't help us too much understand, it's certainly not for Dharma practitioners, and the Dharma makes such a big difference for uh, aging. I can't imagine uh, heading into the final years of life without the Dharma. I simply cannot fathom how anybody could do it, no matter how much golf you get to play. <laughs> so um, that's something I'm doing, and uh, I think now we should, we're supposed to take a break, is that it? No? Yeah. Oh, you have something to say, Janet. Some things. Yeah. Some things. Do you want a mic? We'll just. Start the talk. I'd like to do a little survey of my own. How many of you? are new to practice. How many of you are new to practice? Meaning maybe in the last six months you've started doing some practice. And how many of you have been practicing for a year or less? How many of you have been practicing uh, five years or more? Wow. And how many of you <laughs> <laughs> we can keep going, um, are over 10 years of practice. I know a lot of hands are going to go up because so many of you look familiar to me, like I've seen you a zillion times. Um, okay, so that, that just helps me to know a little bit about who's here. So I thought I would talk tonight about something that hopefully would bridge whatever level of practice you have. It would it would perhaps be useful. Um, so I'd like to start with a cartoon from The New Yorker. And it, this cartoon is, um, takes place in a psychiatrist's office. And the psychiatrist is sitting with his jacket on at his desk, looking a little stern. And there's a man on, standing on top of his desk, going like this with his fists, with his mouth wide open, blah, 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 blah. And there's a woman sitting in an armchair saying to the psychiatrist, can you give him something to calm him down till the country gets straightened out? <laughs> I 
we all, I'm sure, have faced this feeling in perhaps just the recent days even. I was hearing today about the toxic sludge that's coursing its way through Hungary and down the Danube. And, and then I was hearing about the, um, the, the flooding in Pakistan with the, so many of the schools now having been destroyed and the Taliban trying to blow up even more schools. And it's, you know, it's just like, <laughs> calm down, calm down. How do we calm down in the face of life's difficult situations internally, externally? We all need to learn this capacity to uh, stay present when things get rocky or bumpy. And I think this is where mindfulness or vipassana or insight meditation, whatever you want to call it, has so much to offer our world, so much to offer ourselves, because it is a teaching that says over and over again, and it's a hard lesson to learn, that it's not what's happening out here that is the problem. And we may not like it, but the real problem lies in how we are reacting to that, how we are relating to that which is difficult to bear, which is one of the, uh, one of the meanings of dukkha, of suffering, that which is difficult to bear, something we, we just find hard to to uh, accept, to feel, to, uh, to be in relationship with. We want to perhaps run away, distract ourselves, think about something else. So this is sort of the territory of what I want to talk about tonight. How it is that mindfulness gives us another view of what is what is possible, another view of ourselves and of the world. Um, the first step on the Eightfold Path is called Right View, Right View. And it's the understanding that in order, to, in order for our practice to be effective, this is, it's a desirable attitude to have, this attitude of right view. It's understanding that the basis of our practice is the Four Noble Truths. And, you know, as, as many times as I've heard the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, it never stops uh, being a, a teaching that has something more to, to, for me to learn from. Suffering and the end of suffering. Right view is understanding that, we're, well, first of all, right, we're not talking about right as opposed to wrong, but we are talking about right, the view that is in harmony with the truth of the situation, the view that is in harmony with reality. So the reality is there is this quality of things are difficult to bear in our world, internally, externally. 
how can we be not in denial of those facts, not in uh, not feeling overwhelmed by those facts, not being a victim of that which is difficult to bear, but in harmony with how can we have a relationship that is not uh, that that is in harmony? We'll leave it at that. This is sometimes called wise view, wise or right view. So that's the kind of foundation of our practice, that understanding. And uh, knowing the Four Noble Truths, working with them, studying them over and over is a really good foundation for practice. Tonight I'd like to talk of some other ways in which our view of ourselves and our world shifts as we practice. Um, as we practice, things change. I mean, you know, we wouldn't do any of this. We wouldn't do it for 20 years if we didn't suspect or actually experience changes, very real changes in our view, in our way of seeing ourselves, being with ourselves, and the world. Now, I, I, you know, I wouldn't, I mean, some of you have practiced a long time. Uh, would you would you not would you say that nothing has changed, or would you say that something has changed? How many of you would say something has changed? Perhaps it perhaps the thing that has changed or those things that have changed are not what you expected at the beginning. We could also say that that we come into practice with certain expectations of the changes that we're gonna. <laughs> that are going to somehow be given to us or are going to fall on us out of grace or some, you know, I used to think that there were secret teachings and that one day, you know, I'd receive them and that would be the end. I'd just go home, you know, done. The path is done. It's over. But those kind of changes have, are, don't happen or they happen so momentarily that they don't really make a lasting uh, impression. So what are some of the changes that actually um, make a difference? So I'm going to describe four areas that I've noticed of, of change that is, seems worthwhile. First is the view of the body. The view of the body. We live in a culture, of course, where the body is viewed as an object, as, and a, as the appearance, that we are how our body appears. And so we give in our culture an inordinate, all cultures perhaps do this, an inordinate amount of time and energy to the appearance of, of our bodies, trying to look what? What are some of the words you would use? How, huh? Intelligent. Intelligent. Well, I never heard that before, but that's a good one. What else do we? Huh? We want to look hot, especially when we're under 55, but that's another story. What else? Young. Young and hot. 
and fit. Really fit. Thin. Cool. Yeah, fashion. We want to look like, you know, hip. We know what's going on. Attractive. And you know, as you get older, it's, it's a funnier, it, it, th th these words don't exactly apply anymore. <laughs> I think that if I can just look not tired, I'm doing well. <laughs> we really don't want to see what aging looks like. We don't want to see what wrinkles look like, what sagging skin or, you know, rot, rotting teeth or graying hair. We just, you know, we'd rather skip that part or cover it up with all the way, in all the ways that our makeover culture knows to do. So when we come to meditation practice, it's a great relief, actually, for many people to, well, even closing your eyes. You're, when you're sitting on your cushion, you really don't need to be worrying about how you look. Maybe you do at times if you're trying to impress the teacher or somebody special is coming and you want to, you know. But for the most part, your, your eyes are closed, so you're beginning to, and the instruction is to be aware of the body the inter, from the inside out, to experience the body not as an object but as a subject. This, this physical world that we inhabit that we give so little attention to until we sit down and then we're encouraged to feel the body, to feel the the sensations, the, the contact of, of the uh, body with the, in, the, in the sense doors of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and sensing and feeling the, the living quality of this body, the aliveness of it. And of course, the more we do that, the body loves it. Are you aware of that? The body loves to have awareness given to it. Well, it, it seems to wake up, or maybe we're just, you know, we are waking up to the life that is already going on here in this, in this precious human body. So over time we begin to experience the body as the place we return to, to feel more at ease, to feel more calm, more peaceful, more at home in ourselves. We begin to see that the body is what brings us back into the present. It allows us to be present in a way that we may not have experienced before. That we, we may feel, as the, the senses open, we may feel this connection with life with, through the sense doors of seeing and hearing and smelling. We're, we're not so separate anymore. So this body, is a, we become aware of it being a tremendous resource and a tremendous source of not only pain, but of this aliveness of being. So our view of the body changes, and it becomes a place of uh, comfort, you could even say, of just being alive in the present. The second way our view changes is in relationship to time. Our whole sense of time changes with practice. When we are living out of our head, 
We tend to live in the past, remembering things in the past, or we tend to be thinking and planning or fantasizing about the future, about what is not yet to come, not yet here. And as I said, dropping down into the body helps us to begin to be more present. We learn to anchor our attention in the present. And doing this over and over and over again begins to shift our sense of time, of where it is that life is actually happening, where it is that we are most alive. Are we most alive when we're thinking about the past? Are we most alive when we're fantasizing about the future? No. We discover over and over that the only place we are truly alive is in the present. And so this relationship to the present becomes significant. <coughs> Often, Without practice, we see the present as something to endure, to get through, to get to where we really want to go. There was another New Yorker uh, cartoon with two people heading out onto the freeway, and the sign on the side of the road says, next 200 miles, your own tedious thoughts. <laughs> and it's that sense of, oh, I've got to get through this to get to where I really want to go. Or at times, the present moment is, can be seen as the enemy, as an obstacle to our satisfaction. If only this pain would go away, then I could feel peaceful. The present moment may seem intolerable, completely unacceptable. This should not be happening, as if we know what should be happening. We have an idea that's not being met, so we get locked into a struggle with the present moment. Eckhart Tolle writes about this quite beautifully, actually, because he, he equates the inability to be present and to um, have a relationship with the present in which we are not locked in struggle, he, he sees that as the end of the egoic identification. He says, the decision to make the present moment into your friend is the end of ego. <clears throat> Time is what the ego lives on. The stronger the ego, the more time takes over your life. Almost every thought you think is then concerned with past or future, and your sense of self depends on the past for your identity and on the future for its fulfillment. <clears throat> So this begins to deconstruct as we practice. Have you noticed that your sense of self shifts out of this identification with the past of 
having to be the person that you always thought you were, the story you told about who you were, it begins to shift in a rather subtle way, actually, by learning that in the present, something else is going on. Something else is going on in the present which is well worth paying attention to that has nothing to do with the past. It has nothing to do with the story you tell yourself about who you think you are. It has nothing to do with the future. It has its own uh, reality. Nisargadatta has this line, reality is what makes the present so vital. It's because we're in reality when we're in the present that we're so attracted to it. Maybe not all the time, but when we're more and more, we feel this reality of what's true is right here. It's not in the future. It's not in the past. So the Buddha called the present moment the one fortunate attachment. Isn't that great? You can be as attached as you want to the present moment because there's so much of value to discover in being here. Trungpa called connecting with the present basic sanity. Basic sanity. What could be, what we think should be, what might be, that's all fantasy. That's opinion. That's stress, actually because it puts us at odds with what is here. What is, what is, is sanity, reality. So our practice then encourages this befriending of the present, this, say, this, this capacity to, instead of judging the present, to be curious turn no, this cannot be, this is not right, into yes, this is what is so right now. This is what is so right now. It creates more space inside of us to begin to uh, say yes to the present rather than no. There's a little story about the Buddha called the 84th problem. Maybe some of you have heard this, but once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work very difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise, with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough 
others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly, then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching cannot help you with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we think we shouldn't have any problems. <laughs> and that's where our practice is so useful. That shows us that uh, belief we hold, that it should be different somehow. So this shift happens in relationship with suffering, with this belief that things should be different than they are, which is what the Buddha tells us is suffering. We want it to be different. It's, there's pain, but we want it not to be there. That's suffering. Uh, there's uh, a person in your life who is difficult. We want it to be different but it isn't. That's suffering. So this is the, the movement of mind that wants to reject the way it is. <clears throat> Achan Cha, who was Jack Cornfield's Thai meditation teacher, uh, put it like this. He said that we need to recognize where the suffering is actually occurring. He said, if you have an itch on your leg, you don't scratch your ear. Meaning, is the suffering in the situation or in your reaction to it? So that is the 84th problem. So when we are trying in our practice or in our lives, um, and we do this very sincerely. We really do aspire to feel good and to feel a sense of well-being and okayness and happiness. We very often in that aspiration turn away from that which is difficult, from what we are actually experiencing. We go towards how we think it should be. This is how we are taught often as children, to be nice, to be good, to uh, not have a problem. So in that very innocent turning away from the way it actually is, to how we actually feel, to what is actually going on inside of ourselves and trying to override it or what is called spiritually bypass it, an innocent mistake, but one which um, actually teaches us something not useful, which is that we, are, that we can't trust our actual experience. And this is one of the biggest changes which we can experience in our practice, to be more truthful about our actual experience. We discover that it is actually an act of love to meet ourselves where we are, as we are. 
genuine self-love is not possible as long as we are trying to skip over what we think shouldn't be happening to present ourselves as the person, as some other person that we think we, sh- we are supposed to be. And when we reject our experience, we're actually strengthening this not trust, not trusting our experience, perhaps feeling a, a, a sense of shame about what we are experiencing or unworthiness that somehow we shouldn't be the way we are. So allowing yourself to have the experience you are having means clearly recognizing what you are feeling and saying yes to it. This is a huge shift for many people, saying yes to what is here, rather than trying to change, change it or jump over it. And when, we, when I say saying yes to this, it's not yes, look at me, I'm such a horrible person to be feeling this uh, irritation, but yes, this is the truth of my experience right now. Right now I'm upset, or I'm irritated, or I feel uh, judging, or something. It's just to recognize the truth is a, such a crucial part of, of practice. This is what is present. What we're saying yes to is, this is what is true for me right now. This is what is present. So. One, so we discover many things when we, when we begin this journey of being truthful about our experience. One of them being is that we have the capacity to do this. We don't need to run away from or judge our painful feelings of anger, jealousy, despair, loneliness. We don't need to believe the story they are telling or be afraid to experience them. We learn that our awareness is more powerful than any feeling. Awareness has this uh, capacity to hold whatever is put in front of it, like the mirror that is shining. It's not the, the mirror doesn't flinch if something in front of it is, is ugly or you know doesn't have a judgment about what's placed in front of it. It simply reflects. Awareness can hold all of our experiences without judging us, without condemning us, without creating a big story about uh, our failures. Of course, we usually try many other things first than this approach of just opening and seeing what is there and being truthful and present. We, we try almost anything than that. It's called mindfulness as the last resort. <laughs> I've seen it over and over again, not only in other people's lives, but in my own life as well. You know, we'll, we'll do almost anything before we actually say, okay, all right, okay, I'll sit with it, you know. So a little practice that I wanted to uh, recommend, it's one I've used, is this practice that you can do in your daily life and do it as an experiment. This practice of 
saying yes to yourself throughout the day. Yes, it's just an acknowledgement of the truth of what is happening. Yes, right now I'm nervous. Yes, I'm, right now I'm stressed. Yes, right now I'm rushing. Yes, right now I feel so full of gratitude. Yes, this is what is happening right now. Don't reject anything you are experiencing. Say yes to it. Touch it. Let it be. Don't always be trying to fix yourself, make yourself different than you are. We don't realize how precious the truth actually is because the truth is what will take us deeper in our practice. The fixing never takes us any deeper. It's just a a little momentary band-aid. So finally, we've talked about our view of our body coming into a more uh, embodied experience of life. We've talked about the view of time, that when we live more in the present, we begin to lose such a frantic sense of time, the past, the future, the the linear sense of time. And we, we actually experience a more timeless world, because when we are when we are completely present, time is not relevant. There's just this breath, this sound, this taste, this conversation. There's a, there's a quality of just fullness and wholeness. The fourth way in which practice uh, shifts our view is in our, is, is, is embedded, of course, with all these other things I've said, but it has a slightly different uh, angle. The fourth way our view change is that we move from a feeling of deficiency in the face of our problems to a sense of our sufficiency, that we can meet life, that we can meet whatever arises as we sit, as we walk, as we go through our days. We can meet these things. We can say yes to that which is difficult. We can um, learn to be present with a curious, open-hearted attitude towards whatever arises. And this is quite a a shift, because in our consumer-oriented culture, we are very much inducted into this trance of scarcity. Have you noticed that in this Western world, does anybody have enough? Isn't it incredible? The wealthiest, most, you know, we have so much in the material, in terms of material uh, wealth in the Western world. And yet, it's never enough. Now, that's insane, don't you think? We, we, have, we don't seem to have enough. We, have, we haven't done enough. We never come to the end of our to-do list, do we? There's always more to do. The doing, we're, we're, we're doers, we're, we're 
we're out there trying to keep up and it's never enough. And then who we are, who we are is not enough. So we have en endless self-improvement programs, courses that will earn you, you know, more of whatever it is you're looking for. And this idea that we, we need to endlessly improve. So it's a kind of big belief in not, not enoughness. And it, and it puts us back in this kind of trance of being separate and alone. And that we need to manipulate our world and strategize and get better methods so that we'll end up feeling, what? What are we after? What are we after with all this? Anybody have a clue? Feeling full. Yes, feeling full. I think you're right, that there's some kind of sense, not just physically full, but that we, it will complete us. You know, if we just have that new sofa, it will <laughs> somehow bring a sense of ultimate fulfillment. And maybe there's a, like five minutes when, it, when you first get it and it's all new and you're sitting there with your family and everybody loves it, there is a sense of great fulfillment. But does it last? Does it really, you know, help you in the middle of the night when you wake up and wonder what, you know, what you're doing with your life? Well, I've got a sofa. You know, it doesn't really <laughs> do it, does it? And even now we have this technology with all the social networks, you know, the, the <laughs> Facebook and MySpace and Twitter and what else is out there? You guys know better than I. Does that create a sense of fulfillment? Is anybody fulfilled by being, having access to all these things? It might be a question to ask. And then there is the ungooglable man, another New Yorker cartoon. This guy's walking down the street, the ungooglable man. No Facebook page, no MySpace page, no nothing. Even the most powerful search engines cannot detect him. <laughs> and yet he walks amongst us. come to that, you know. If we're on Google, we must have arrived. So we discover through sad experience that none of these things, no amount of wealth, education, Google pages, or will ever, you know, bring us to this sense of wholeness or completeness or fullness that we long for. It's only our own realization that will bring us the wholeness and the freedom which we sense is possible, as we said. We, we sense that there's something that we're touching at times along these lines. And we discover that as we practice, we touch into many experiences and states of mind that perhaps up till now have only been words. Feelings of peace or calm or equanimity, compassion, forgiveness, these become real. This is the meaning of realization. These states become real to us. And by bringing attention to them, recognizing them, 
appreciating their presence, they become more available. They grow, they develop in us, and they become available when we need them. I, <clears throat> several years ago, went on a retreat and uh, had a lovely, wonderful time back at the Forest Refuge in, in uh, Massachusetts. And um, I had to, uh, I left the retreat. I think I was there for almost a month, maybe three weeks. I don't remember exactly. But I went directly from the retreat center to the Boston airport. And having had a wonderful retreat, um, when I got to the airport, I, you know, I just went up to the counter and the woman said to me, um, oh, well, your flight has been canceled. <laughs> and it was like she could have said, uh, the sky is blue, the trees are green. It meant nothing to me. Now, that was an unusual reaction on my part. Usually, if somebody says, your flight is canceled, I, you know, I'd have a few, like, oh. But this time, it was like, oh, that's really, that's interesting. But what I saw was that she had it completely figured out for me. She said, well, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to go here, you're going to go there, you're going to get on this plane, and, you know. She had it all worked out, which I thought was, at the time, it just seemed to me like a tremendously compassionate thing to be doing. <laughs> that was how different my mind state was from having sat for three weeks. So it was an interesting day. It was immediate feedback for, wow, this practice really works, you know, look at this. So, as we practice, we do develop this greater sense of sufficiency and inner resources that are available to us to help us meet whatever arises in our lives. So these are four ways that practice changes our view of the body, of time, of how to be with that which is difficult, and our sense of resourcefulness, or sufficiency, or wholeness. So I think I'll stop there. Maybe I'll read, maybe I'll end with this uh, writing by a man named Billy Mills. Do any of you know who Billy Mills was? Yes. He was the first Native American uh, runner uh, Olympic gold medal runner. And he, this was back in the early 60s. I forget exactly what year, but he won the uh, Olympic gold medal for running. And because of the racism present at that time, nobody took any pictures of him. And it was hardly reported at all in our, our media that he had won. So he had a mixed life, you know, he had a life where he did, he had some great success, but it wasn't exactly recognized. So he wrote this. <clears throat> I asked for fame so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. 
I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given a life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked Mother Earth for strength. I was given weakness that I might feel my need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. So let's sit together for a minute. So we have a little bit of time if anyone has any thoughts or reflections or questions. Yes? Would you mind using this? Or somebody could pass this? Sure. Okay, thanks. Hi, my name's Tori, and I'm 49, and I'm wondering if I have to wait until I'm 55 to do a retreat with you, or if you do them for younger people, too. <laughs> oh, thank you. I do many retreats that are uh, no age requirement. It's just these day-longs that are um, 55 and over. Um, I do many retreats. I taught a women's retreat last week, and starting next week, I'll be teaching a creativity retreat for writers and painters. And I have taught month-long retreats, and yeah, I do lots of stuff. It's no age restriction. <laughs> but you better come soon <laughs> because, you know, I'm getting up there. Anyone else? I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about the talk. Just what did you learn or what resonates with you or um, I what was going through my mind when you were speaking was now let's say the reactions. Actually I well first of all let me say I really enjoyed your talk. It was very uh timely for me. And hearing about, like, say, for example, learning to be with my own reactions. 
And I think that's part of the process for me that goes on. It's like, oh, this is actually going on. In the past, perhaps, it wasn't noticed or everything's hunky-dory. Exactly. But actually, oh, no, wait, this is really going on. Yes. And then... That's being truthful. And then now it's like the the question that was in my mind is, so this is going on and it's now what? So, for example, it may be an observation, a reaction going on, uh, but then what's the proper response. So, like, like I feel like I'm in the world. There are things. There's, there's this, but there is that. Yes. And there are others. And so, in relation to other people, then, what's the response? Yes, what is the response? Um, internally, curiosity, going towards your reactivity. I find, you know, like, to turn judgment of ourselves into sort of a more, a curiosity that, that, is, that is open to learning. Like, wow, am I really that um, impatient all the time? You know, or what is that about? Why am I getting so hooked in here? You know, what is that? that and, and to be, sort of have a, a realization that this is where the teaching needs to happen, is right here in this moment. It's not some other moment that, you know, sounds more Buddhist or something. It's this moment that the Buddha was talking about as as the difficulty when we are caught in our own uh, morass. And then with with somebody um, who is out here doing their whatever, you know, to try to connect with what is going on that perhaps you're not in touch with. You know, it's quite a dance, this whole human thing of connecting with ourselves, connecting with another, thinking we know somebody and then they surprise us, we don't know them at all, like, what the heck was that? You know, it's just quite a dance. But it, it, you can never go wrong if there's, you know, there's, if there's that quality of interest and openness. You don't have to figure it out. We used to, you know, I think maybe in the psychological world or in some worlds that I've been through, you know, the idea was that you're supposed to figure it all out. But actually, I find, especially as I get older, that that's not really required that we figure it out. I don't want to be figured out in particular. You know, somebody out here trying to figure me out doesn't do a lot for me, other than just, you know, I feel a little on the spot, but somebody who can be open and actually seem to be interested in my experience, that's more helpful, more connecting in the long run. So I don't know if any of that helps, but... Anyone else? Yes. I I really enjoyed your talk too, and um, in particular, listening to someone who has such insight and I have such appreciation for that. In particular one thing that really resonated with me was 
how you said the body loves to be um, felt, or I can't remember exactly how you expressed it. Attention. Attention. To, yes. ha- to give the body attention is, is to love it, in a mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. And um, another one was... Um, that being in in the present moment and not skipping over things is loving a way of loving yourself mm-hmm. too and mm-hmm. and that really is a draw for practice mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> especially for me at this point in my yes. life is not skipping over things yes that that is giving to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I've not really seen practice that way before. Mm. Lovely. So thank yes. you. I think of it as like learning to live at the speed of life, is one way I say it. That in practice we're learning to be in harmony with the speed of life, which is actually very pretty slow. You know, breathing in, breathing out. The heart is beating, the blood is moving. You know, we're not speeding, our, our lives are not lived in, in, uh, in a really fast way, but we're very alive at the same time. So some of it is, the, what's helpful is the practice helps us to slow down enough to, to feel that rhythm of life itself. One more in the back, and then we'll stop. Hi. I haven't seen nice you. I haven't see seen you in a couple of years. I know. It's nice it's to see. Been, uh, it's nice <laughs> to see you as well. Um, so I loved your talk, and what it's triggering in me is this quandary that I'm in, which is that when I sit, which is daily, I feel very solid and very still, and at the same time, at present, and it also feels like depression. Mm. And there's also a frequent sense of transparency, too. So all this is happening at the same time, and it's never been more consistently painful, physically, emotionally painful. So today I had an interesting experience because you were using the word say, uh, say yes. So I, and, and the, the other part of this is that frequently this aggressive, judgmental part just comes out like, you know, like a tiger. It's very, very powerful. It's very much in the body. So you said, say yes. So earlier today, for the first time, I said, hi. <laughs> and it all broke apart. Oh, excuse me. It all broke apart. It was very interesting. That happened it, tonight? or earlier today. today? No, today. Oh. During the day, I forgot. Oh, I, I was... It's just it happens frequently, yeah. and I'm usually saying welcome. Yeah, That's yeah. how I've been working ah, with it. But for t- today, for the first time, I said hi, ah. and I felt this smile yeah. <laughs> sort of come into my heart. Like Lovely. somehow that word, that, that, that was somehow making a deeper 
uh, connection there. Beautiful. That's his, that's yes. Hi. Old but friend. I, yeah, I know. But I mean, the, the, what you said is really important that, that we, we can't avoid these problems. And, and the resistance course. is what creates the struggle That's right. and the That's suffering. Right. Yes. So, and we can't, it, you know, it's so interesting, like, welcome wasn't the word for you. You had to find <laughs> the word that really That's was right. The That's right. open and That's just right. friendly, you know. Hi. Yeah, sweet and, yeah, and, and sweet. friendly. Yeah, yeah great. That's right. Thank okay. you. Thank you for that. Okay. So thank you, everyone, for um, being here tonight, and uh, I hope to see you again the not-too-distant future, and uh, you've been very welcoming, and it's been very en enjoyable. Let's, let's send out our, uh, make a, a meta-offering to the world from, from our practice. May all the moments of our practice and all the good intention that we bring into our living in this world May we send it all out for the benefit and welfare of our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers, our peers, our children, our parents, all our relations, those known to us and those unknown. May all beings everywhere be at peace within themselves. May all beings everywhere be at peace with one another. May all beings everywhere live in great peace and harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.